There was once a man that moved into a new house. It had a big front yard that was well-maintained, and it had a nice fenced-in backyard that was green and flat and beautiful. The man didn't have a yard before buying this house, so he was excited for it to be all his own. The problem was is that he only had a push mower. The yard was too big to do the lawn in one day, so he got in the rhythm of mowing the front lawn on one day and the back lawn on another day. Well, things happen in life, and sometimes weather gets bad or schedules are crunched for time, and every once in a while, the man would only mow the front yard. He wanted people to think that he was a good citizen, and he knew the man that owned the house before him had kept that lawn pristine. And he knew that people couldn't see that fenced-in backyard, so he focused on putting the best foot forward. He wanted people to think that he was a respectable neighbor. Soon the backyard was neglected, and the grass was high, too high for a push mower. And weeds were overcoming the area, and the children were afraid of snakes in the high grass. But the problem is, is the backyard... It's the one they used. It was where the fire pit was and the kiddie pool was and the barbecue and the swing set. The backyard was where life happened. See, when we prioritize things that people see rather than uh, the place where life happens inside of us, we sacrifice the most special things. So far in the book of Haggai, we've seen the uh, people of Israel that were exiled into Babylon. They come back into Jerusalem and they uh, obey God and they begin to lay a foundation for God's house. But then they quit working and they just give up. And they decide on focusing on making their house look better. Their priorities were messed up. They needed to flip their houses. They were concerned with the material while their spiritual life was neglected and grown over. But Haggai was given a message from God to tell these people, God's house first. God's house first. Now, not a building, but the worship that he deserves is paramount. And they needed to flip those houses. Not just God adjacent, but God centered. So they get excited and they work for a couple weeks, but then they get discouraged again because they remember what the old temple used to be like. And they knew that this new temple wasn't going to live up to the past. God spoke to them again through the prophet Haggai. And uh, he, he told them not to worry about the past and not to worry about what was. Worry about what God told you to do right now. And even though it's not the same, it's still good. And ultimately, the future temple in heaven will be the one where we'll get to see God face to face. And the future temple in heaven will make Solomon's temple, that old temple, look plain and small. People get back to work, putting God's worship in front of their material things. God's house over their house. But God had another message for the people of Israel. See, their actions were good, but their hearts weren't yet pure. So two months after the last message, the third message God gave uh, the people of Israel in Haggai. So two months later, God shows up again to tell Haggai a message. So we're in Haggai chapter 2 and verse 10, and we'll read a few verses here if you want to open your Bible there. 
It says, On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. And this is what God said. He said, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Ask the priest about the law. If someone carries meat in the fold of his garment and touches it with the fold of uh, uh, bread or stew or wine or oil or any other kind of food, does that food become holy? The priest answered and said, no. And then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it does become unclean. And then Haggai answered and said, So it is with the people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offered there is unclean. Haggai comes to the priest and he asks some questions about the ceremonial law that was given to Israel, what they could eat and how they could dress. Now these laws, these ceremonial laws are different than the moral laws like Thou shalt not murder, and thou shalt not lie. These laws were symbolic things that they did in order to set them apart from other countries. And they were also a constant reminder to the people that they were supposed to be different inside and out. So they did these things to focus their hearts and minds on God. And God told them to do these ceremonial laws. Now, the church is not Israel, and that's why we aren't bound by those ceremonial laws and the festivals they had eating kosher food, or even uh, Sabbathing on Saturday instead of Sunday. No, we aren't bound by those today. And this change happened right after the resurrection. Why? Because Christ fulfilled the law. And Jesus is what sets us apart. And we meet together on Sunday now as a celebration of his resurrection, just like the early church did right after that. So God doesn't change, but the way he leads us, the way he deals with us sometimes does. So the moral law of the Old Testament still applies. And keeping the moral law doesn't save us. We can't get saved by our good works. But the moral law does show us our need for a Savior. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And Jesus summed up all these moral laws by these two commandments. To love God and love your neighbor. So you're getting a little class here on the uh, laws in the Old Testament. You got the civil, or excuse me, you got the ceremonial law and the moral law. And then there also is the civil law that tells you what to do if you accidentally trap another man's donkey in a pit. So if you ever need to know that, it's in there, okay? They didn't have a government, so they had to have a law that would, uh, you know, help them figure out how to live together in relationship with each other. So all that to say this, Haggai asked these questions about the ceremonial law, but not just information for him, but in order to teach and to bring something to the surface. See, things were left unclean, which meant they weren't allowed to use them or they had to go and wash themselves. These things happened because of disobedience. When God said to do something and they didn't do it, then they were unclean. And you might remember this from the life of Samson, right? When he touched the dead body of the lion that had a honeycomb in it, and that was against God's law, and especially because he was a Nazarite. And he'd taken this vow, that whole story. So Israel uh, had gone into exile because of disobedience and rejection of God. 
And God had brought them back lovingly, and they still disobeyed by not building back the temple. They started working on again, but they weren't truly yet repentant on the inside. And it seems as though they had felt that working on the temple made them holy while they were unrepentant and impure on the inside. And what God is telling them here is that, no, you're not holy because you work on the temple. In fact, the deeds that you're doing and the work that you're doing becomes unholy because your heart is unholy. Haggai's message to them is that doing actions that God told them to do with their hearts still impure and unholy, it makes their obedience null and void. And God had called them to be holy, to be set apart. They were supposed to be the picture of what a relationship between God and the world looked like. They were set apart for something sacred so that they could be used by God. But working on the temple didn't make them holy obedience in our heart makes us holy. Jesus emphasized this as well all throughout the New Testament in the Gospels. The scribes and Pharisees were concerned with the disciples not ceremonially washing their hands before each meal, which is a great thing to do, right? But they were saying that they were not right with God because of it. And this was actually something that they added to the ceremonial law. As time went by, God had given them some laws, but the Pharisees and the scribes and the priests, they began to make them even bigger and bigger and bigger so that no one could attain it. And they were talking about washing your hands before you eat. And Jesus says this, though, in Matthew 7, 20. He says, it's what comes out of a person is what defiles him from Uh, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. The Pharisees were concerned. It's all they could think of. Do you ever have a conversation with somebody about that? There's this big thing going on, and all they could think about is the most minute detail, and they're lost And they're frozen because they can't think bigger. And the Pharisees were thinking so small. They were concerned about the foods that the disciples were eating and whether or not it was clean or not because they washed their hands. But Jesus said, don't worry about what goes into your mouth. Worry about what's coming out of your mouth. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 34, our mouth shows what's in our heart. And what, you know, you can look... You open your mouth wide enough, you can look all the way down from your mouth all the way into your heart. (laughs) No, but what comes out of our mouth shows what's in our hearts. And you can do all the church things and you can have all the church knowledge, but if anger and mistruth and lust and pride and lies and gossip and wickedness are coming out of your mouth, then it's proof that your heart is impure. And whatever religious actions you may do are then worthless. And you see this sometimes, right? Isn't it crazy how sometimes the meanest people that you have ever met have been Christians? Biting words and condescending tones and superior attitudes. And if you've felt that and you've experienced that, I am so sorry. 
If you've been to churches that have made you feel that way, those things are not from God, and they, those people need to repent. Now, sometimes we do have to say hard truths to each other, but those things should be motivated by love and laced with grace, not motivated by pride and anger and accusation and laced with poison. How many people have done things that they thought were religiously zealous and have left people wounded. Just look at things like the Crusades, right? Where people had crosses on their shields as they marched to a different land and slaughtered people in the name of what they thought God wanted them to do. And if we're not careful and we don't check our hearts, our religious action and coming to church and doing the things that we think are right can cut people down and we can break relationships. And it's null and void. Working with an unrepentant and a distracted heart will only lead you to frustration. And it doesn't please God. You've met people before, I'm sure of it, when you just know that, that they have this sweet and graceful spirit of a person that has spent genuine time with God. And it's real. And people can tell. Maybe it was your grandmother or maybe it was someone else that you met in the community and you just talk to them and you're like, I think this person really loves Jesus. Why? Because they love me. And they're cutting me with their words or making me feel like I am rejected, but they pull me in. And that's what we need to do. And I'm not there all the time, most of the time, but I want to be. See, these people were building the temple and they were obeying God and they were doing the work, but the work on the temple didn't make them holy when they were in disobedience in their hearts and they were impure and unholy in their hearts. So the Bible tells us here that they needed to stop the work and get their hearts right to settle things between them and God. And they could build the most beautiful temple to God, but if they were once again characterized by selfishness and pride and apathy and disobedience and injustice rather than humility and holiness. And all this work that they were doing was going to also be impure and worthless too. You can see this at church sometimes when people show up to serve and volunteer and they think they're getting their merit badge, but then they show up and they complain the whole time about who isn't there or how people aren't pulling their weight and they uh, gossip or there's bitterness or anger or they, they yelling at each other in comparison or using words soaked with guilt. None of that is doing anyone any good. We can have all the good actions and still have a bad heart. We need to guard our hearts and check them often to make sure that they are not becoming twisted and gnarled with impurity and unholiness. Working with an unrepentant and distracted heart will only lead you to frustration. And if you don't have the the main thing as the main thing, that you are only a servant that is trying to please God with your life, if you don't have that as the focus and and that other people, God will deal with them, you're going to lead yourself to comparison and that will only lead to frustration and bitterness and none of that pleases God. 
Haggai reminds them in verses 15 through 19 that God already showed them that there were consequences for disobedience. God had removed his blessing from them. Their crops were failing. And remember that picture he painted of putting all their money in a bag with holes in it. They were working hard, but they weren't making any progress. Working on the holy temple didn't make them holy. Obedience is what makes us holy. God is saying obedience leads to blessing, and that's as a general rule. Obedience leads to blessing. That it's not talking about getting rich, although that could happen. It's all up to God. God decides those things. But it's for sure talking about being blessed. God blesses obedience, but that starts in our hearts. And it starts with repentance. And it starts with checking your motives and attitudes and surrendering all that to God and saying, God, if it's your will, make it happen and I'll follow you and open the door and I'll wait till then and and I won't get angry and bitter at people and try and push and manipulate. But I'll surrender all that to you and then when you tell me to go, I'll go and I'll get to work. The Pharisees had all the ceremonial stuff down, but Jesus said they were rotten on the inside. And they hurt people and they led people away from the Messiah with their actions. And they only cared about getting their way and making themselves look good and elevating themselves. Joyce Baldwin says that uh, in this passage that by heeding the prophet's rebuke and by turning good intentions into actions, Israel exercised faith. And we see this balance of faith and works in this passage. And that it's not that we uh, become children of God through our works, but our faith in Christ alone, the symptoms of that faith is works. And faith without works is dead. We don't have faith, though, we want to be in control. And we just try and work without centering our lives on Jesus Christ, then we're going to think that we're in control, and when we think we're in control and things don't go our way, then we get bitter, and our circumstances, uh, when they don't go the way we want to, we get angry about it, and then we get angry at the people around us. We've got to balance that faith and works at the same time. Churches are full of people that work hard at keeping their front lawns maintained, but in their fenced-in backyard where nobody else can see it's a mess. Attending church and volunteering and, and giving and being a life group, all that is awesome and it is good, but the condition of your heart is more important. And if you're bitter and unforgiving and angry and prideful, you're most likely just spinning your wheels and you're not helping anyone, including yourself. Paul gives young Timothy, that was a faith leader, this uh, encouragement and this challenge that he needs to have his private house in order. And he challenges him with his marriage, that he needs to have a good and a faithful marriage. And, And if a parent, he challenged them that he needed to parent well, and he needed to make sure that he wasn't addicted or abusive or materialistic. Why? Because that's what Jesus came to do, to show us the condition of our hearts And that it's not just okay not to murder anybody, but it's not okay to hate anybody. And it's not just okay not to commit adultery, but it's not okay to lust. And he pushed it deeper and challenged us more to look at the condition of our hearts. 
What goes on inside our hearts and our minds matters. Your private life is more important than your public life. And that might mean, and if you really believe that, that might mean you might go home and confess something to someone today. Because if you're not caring so much about your reputation and and your respect from your community, and and you instead would go and humble yourself and say, hey, I got to get something right on the inside. Because my private life is more important than my public life. We need to constantly be checking our eyes for beams before we go out to work for the Lord. Now, many times I've heard in the past that people might use this for an excuse to do nothing then, right? They might say, well, I, I can't do anything for God because I'm just not right. No, that's not the way to do it either, right? No, you repent. Forgiveness is available to you. Why would you stand between you and a holy God today that is offering you all the forgiveness and mercy and grace and not take it? There's no way this sin that you're holding on to is better than a relationship with the creator that made you. It's not an excuse to do nothing. It's a challenge for true repentance. Proverbs 4.23 says it this way. It says, keep your heart with all vigilance. For from it flows springs of life. Keep your heart with all vigilance. Watch out. Guard your heart. Why? Because out of it, everything else comes out from your heart, your inner person. We have to guard our hearts because our hearts affect all aspects of our lives. And you've probably seen that before where you look on the outside and you think someone, else, someone has something pretty, uh, you know, situations in their lives are pretty good. But you know, just they're negative and they complain all the time. And they're just on the inside, everything is messed up. It's easy to get distracted for our hearts to turn cold and deaf towards the leading of the Holy Spirit. We've got to check on our fenced-in backyard. Because it just might be neglected and overgrown and infested. Hey, God promises to bless our obedience when it starts in our hearts. God's house of worship deserves our best. Not a building, but the act of living in submission to Him and giving Him glory. Communion between us and God. God's house first. Everything else on the back burner. Not our house. His way, not our way. For Israel, God wanted to be in their midst again. He wanted to dwell in them again, in their presence. But they had to do it His way. God wanted something so special for them, but they needed to have faith and to give over their hearts and their actions to God. Working with an unrepentant and distracted heart leads to frustration and doesn't please God. So repent. And be blessed. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. The band's going to come. This time right now is a time of reflection and meditation on what God might have spoke to our hearts about. I've had that happen where 
I was listening to God's word being preached, and God spoke to my heart about something, and it was so clear, God, I hear it, I understand, I need to get that fixed, I need to go apologize to someone, I need to make that situation right. I don't know what that thing is for you today. There's never a time when we've got our life just cleaned up and figured out. It's constant. It's like mowing a lawn. It's constant maintenance. And you've got to maintain your spiritual walk. You've got to put attention on it, not just on what everybody sees, not just on the outside, but on the parts that nobody sees. Maybe there's something you've been holding on to for years. Maybe there's some hurt. And it was legitimate. But you've gotten bitter and, and you've held on to it and you can't let it go. And that's the problem with bitterness is it, it really, we think we're hurting someone else, but we're hurting ourselves. Maybe you've got some inner problem. Statistics tell us that in a room this size, uh, there is a large percentage of people that are dealing with lust and pornography or, or other types of sexual sin. And you might think everything on the outside is, you know, people think I'm respected, but on the inside, in my private life, what nobody else can see, it's, it's just, it's not pleasing to God hurting myself. I'm hurting my family. We might need to, to make some things right. Commit right now to, to not ignore this problem or to sweep it under the rug like it's not that big of a deal. We've got to face our sin and expose it to the light. Because sin dies in the light. And you might need to Get an accountability partner and say, hey, I need you to check on this with me. I need you to pray with me. I need help. It's good to do all these uh, religious things, to, to sing out and to come to church. But this offering that we give and this time that we might serve in the community and show love to people, we've got to make sure that it starts with a sincere and pure heart. Not doing it for our own credit or for our own fame, but doing it in God's name alone. As you continue to pray and deal with whatever God, it might not be something I mentioned at all, but God is pressing on your heart right now that you've got to get something right. You gotta fix this thing. And you don't have the power to do it. It's about in, in surrendering it and saying, God, I'll do whatever it takes. And then follow through. Or maybe you're here today and you're not yet sure that you are a child of God. You're not against, you know, the idea, but you're not sold necessarily yet either. You haven't committed to become a Jesus follower. That's the most amazing thing that could ever happen in your life today. To have, to have that relationship between you and God restored. See, it was broken way back at the beginning of time. Way back in the garden with sin coming into the world. And 
And ever since then, death and disease and pain and, and war and famine and all this has flooded the earth and it's messed up and it keeps getting worse. But there was a plan from the beginning as well that God would make a way for us to get to him. In the Old Testament, God kept giving them ways for his presence to be with them through the uh, following him and the tabernacle and the uh, temple and, and all these things. And, and he promised way back in the beginning that this person would come to crush Satan's head and sin's head. And they looked forward to the Messiah coming. And 2,000 years ago, he did. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, walked this earth a perfect and a holy life, and he, he did miracles to prove who he was. He fulfilled prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. And then he laid down his life at 33 years old. And he died in our place, taking our punishment. The Bible says he became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the sons of God. God commended his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died for all the sin that you've done. And he offers you that forgiveness and that peace and that mercy today and to restore your relationship with the God that made you. That's available to you. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's not a magic prayer. It's not a pledge of allegiance. It's a commitment in your heart to put your faith and trust, not in your good works or anything that you've done, but only in what Jesus did on the cross to save you. See, Jesus didn't stay dead on the third day he rose from the grave, bringing our salvation with him. And that small regional uh, movement of just a few people spread throughout the entire world because of the resurrection. And that's how we're here in West Virginia talking about that Jesus from 2,000 years ago. Because Jesus changed everything. You could call out today, right now, the words aren't important. It's about a, a, a genuineness between you and your God. God, I am sorry for my sin. God, I've failed you. Forgive me. I'm turning from my sin, God, and I'm turning to you. I put my faith in what you did on the cross to save me. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. That's you today, and you made that decision. Nothing more amazing than you could ever do. And I'd love to know about it. I, I encourage you to tell people about it. I'd love to know if you'd write that down on your connection card and put it in the, those black boxes so I could reach out to you and talk to you about what happens next. Because this isn't the end of something. It's the beginning of the most amazing adventure that you've ever been on.